Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blasting Game. Today we are interviewing Leo Martinez. Leo has seven years experience working as a substance abuse counselor and social worker with very diverse populations. He has delivered counseling services internationally with specializations in Gorski relapse prevention, CBT, dual disorders, ACT, and multicultural interventions. Leo earned a master's degree in social work from California State University East Bay and a KDAC certificate in addiction counseling. And... He's just a badass dude. So Leo is a Lion Rock recovery clinician. He's actually a clinical supervisor with us. And interviewing him was so intense. He has a really inspiring story of overcoming a lot of different scenarios, including some real trauma. And I just loved how open he was about his feelings, how open he was about his experiences. And I think it's really important for us to be talking about male-on-male sexual violence. I think that's an important piece that is so often not talked about when it comes to, we, we talk a lot about sexual violence against women as well. And I just think that there are a lot of men out there who have a lot of shame around violence or things that have happened to them and they feel that that's something they need to take with them to their grave and I I personally know many men who have dealt with this and by telling someone and being open and dealing with whatever that circumstance that happened was the key to their freedom and I really really hope that the experience that you have as a listener is to see that there is courage in talking about the things that you feel most ashamed about. That the truth is that we all can relate to various emotions that happen in life and and that it's okay to talk about our trauma and our feelings and even when it's scary. So with that being said, I'm very excited for you to listen. I hope you get a lot out of it and Episode 16, let's do this. All right, Leo Martinez, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley, for having me. I'm excited. It was my my pleasure. So Let's jump in where, so you're, well, we, we have a debate going, right? Because you're seven years sober. I think. But you're actually two years sober because you got sober on a leap year. I got sober on a non-existent day for most of the years, <laughs> I guess, which I think we were just joking how fitting it is. It's like a day that I wish would show up and then yeah. it gets there and it's yeah. like, am I really here uh-huh, or not? Just kidding. Uh, every, not here. every four years though. So yeah, I'm really one in like maybe... Seven tenths. Oh, yeah. But technically seven. Yeah, technically seven. So yeah. seven years walking on the sunny side of the street. Yes. It's Absolutely. Awesome. Very sunny. It's awesome. And uh, you are a therapist and a father and a husband. Yes, I am. New father. I have a beautiful one-year-old little daughter. And I have been, I just celebrated my third year of marriage anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah. That's really Thank cool. You. Thank That's you. It's really awesome. So I want to get into, you know, what, you know, kind of your background. Did you are 
you have a Latin heritage. What tell us about that and and what that was like? So I I was just having this long conversation with my parents. You know, I'm very fortunate. I have parents that have been together almost 50 years. Wow. They are they are two people who grew up in some of the worst environments that you could possibly imagine in El Salvador. They met, they bonded at a very young age and they've been married since and two people that have faced um, tragedy, hurt, loss. I can't get into how much they have been through. And especially, not especially, but my father in particular had shared some things recently to me about his childhood that I am shocked and amazed that he turned out to be such a good father because someone with his traumatic background should not be that good of a father based on his history. So you're, you're first generation American. I am. I'm the first generation American born in my family. I was born in San Francisco, California in 1975. Started my life in the Mission District. And eventually my father, in his infinite wisdom and being a muni bus driver, he saw the streets and said, nope, my son is not growing up here because I want to keep him away from gangs and drugs and dope and all the, and everything else. Uh. And he moved me to a suburb of San Francisco where I found gangs uh, and drugs. I and didn't dope. find the gangs, but I found the dope. <laughs> yeah, I found the drugs and yeah. the alcohol and all that. So he tried, but yeah. I ended up. It ended up being kind of the same. Did you? Did he drink a lot, or did you grow up around a lot of drinking? No, interestingly enough, I think the answer is yes and no. So my father, he wasn't much of a drinker and neither was my mother, but there was just drinking all around because of parties. Mm. I work from a traditional like Latin background. We're all about, you know, eating pupusas and dancing salsa and cumbias in the living room for any anybody's event, birthday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Baila. Tuesday, whatever. Baila cumbia. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think I was dancing salsa the day I was born. So I love it. um it was a wonderful part of my life, but yeah. at the same time, it was it was kind of a um, snapshot into a world that really doesn't exist outside of my house, I, I but mm. I was constantly searching for because it was like what we did. We had a good time. Right. Um, and when you say good time? Well, I mean, for me, what was good time was seeing everybody smile, laugh, and dance, and it right. just happened to be that everybody would have a beer or a drink in their right. hand. right. I can remember the days that. But did I, you? You didn't associate those two things. As, I didn't at the time. Yeah, at the time. I was a yeah. kid, right? Yeah, I, yeah. So, like, my, we would have like Leo's birthday party. Yeah. And everybody would show up, and the music would start, and yeah. then it became a party. Like yeah, it like wasn't a, Leo's birthday party anymore. <laughs> it was just a party, <laughs> and like all the festivities would kind of happen. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I would wait. I'd go go to sleep and wake up, and everybody's passed out around my house. Right. And my cake's kind of just sitting on the table, and I would just go in the fridge and get a piece of cake and wonder why everybody was passed out around me. Right. Yeah, my mom will deny it to this day that it wasn't that way, but it was. It was, it, it was totally that way. No, it never happened that way. Yeah, it did, mom. And my brother totally concurred. So I know it happened. I wasn't just making that up. Yeah, yeah. I love him. <laughs> I know. Doing this podcast and, and telling our stories, I've had the same experience where parents are like, oh, for the love, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Why'd you have to say that? I'm like, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think it's based on the fact that, like, they know how my life has been. And right. They, you they know, don't want- I don't know. They won't, yeah. I think that they're just more like hurt and yeah. like scared and I don't know. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, there are a couple of big things that happened in your life. I want to, you know, you were, you shared with me that you were very overweight in high school. What, you know, ta- I know that was, that's been a common thread for you and, um, and then joining the Marines. 
Yeah, I, so I've struggled with my weight as far back as I can remember. I think it, it, really, it really stood out for me when I moved out to that suburb. Hmm. I was in a house that, you know, my grandmother, she was always feeding me, <laughs> always sneaking food, always kind of like saying, Shh, don't tell anybody, you know, yeah. and handing me something. And I, I associated a lot with love and care from my yeah. grandma. Yeah. And uh, I mean, she used to make a drink called an azucarada. And what that is, is a glass of water with a bunch of sugar, sugar just in poured yeah. into it. And she would spin it and I'd see <laughs> the crystals. Fl- I would see the, you know, <laughs> yeah. she'd hand it to me and I'd like drink it. And I'd be like, yeah. oh, I, I love it. Now I know. Sure, why? why? But I guess what happened was, is when I went to this place, I was the only brown kid in this whole school. Right. Everybody was you, white. Yeah. Trying to get you to that, that really good school, but that also required this assimilation. Yeah. So I show up there and not only do I have a different look, but I'm overweight. Right. And so I got made fun of a lot. I got all this, you know, um, real bad memories from it. So I did what I do best is I, I, I kind of joked around about it. I learned how to how to find a solution to the pain, which was become the joke before they made me the joke. And so I was always joking about it, but I was hurting pretty bad. But I was able to to make it through that grade school, but still totally, totally uh, commit. When I committed, but wishing I could commit to losing the weight because later on in high school, of course, when I noticed that girls were not interested in me at all and I was interested in them, I definitely associated my weight to that fact. Talk to us about joining the Marine Corps what, and, and you know, you were 300 pounds when you joined the Marine Corps. No, actually, I, I was 310 pounds uh, recently. But when I joined the Marine Corps, I was 238 pounds okay. around there. And, and, and how tall are you? Back then I was 5'10", okay. just, just about 5'10", 5'9". Okay. I was still growing. I was 17. But I basically joined the Marines for one reason was to lose weight. That, that was it. That's why I went. The yeah. recruiters came out there and told me that, first of all, they turned, they laughed at me when I walked in. They said, no, no, no. And then I took their test and they're like, oh man, you know, like he can yeah. fit into this category. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I became like a project for them. Right. So they had someone running with me like all the time to oh. help me lose a little bit of weight. And I had to lose like, I think like eight pounds to qualify. Oh, wow. And I did. And then that's what the driver was. They promised me I was going to be physically fit. Yeah. So all the people that like say, I'm going to get a scholarship or I'm going to defend the country. (laughs) I was like, dude, just help me lose this weight, please. (laughs) Yeah. And really it, during that time, again, I was 17, but between 14, I would say between 12, when I had my first beer around 12 years old, it wasn't until, I mean, during that whole window of time between 12 and 17 was really when I started my drinking and my drugging. Okay. Um, what did that look like? Well, I was a, a part of the rave scene back in the nineties. Mm. Um, it started, Jinko in, pants? Uh, I was, I uh, wasn't doing the Jinko pants oh, actually. Okay. No, I, I, I don't remember what the heck I was wearing. I was so out of it, but a lot of people around me were wearing the Jinko pants. Yeah. Okay. So I think it, I was wearing cross colors at the time or oh, something boy. like that, oh, <laughs> you know, gosh. something weird. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just said that. <laughs> and so, um, So what ended up happening is that they, it was wild. They would come around our school and drop flyers. They would throw flyers on um, the campus of our high school. And, you know, they had all these like interesting painted figures, clowns, Wally World was the name of one of them. They were just like making this, this environment seem like the most Wait, and raves or military? Raves. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Like that's how it started. Like yeah, they had all yeah. these things that they would send out and we would go. Yeah. And so during that time we were, we started experimenting and I used to be terrified of drugs and alcohol. Right. It wasn't until a high school party that I was actually, I finally gave in 
I actually used to cry when I watched my friends like smoke weed or do something Aww. like that. I'd be like, go do it because my family and everybody had told me how terrible this was, even though right. they were drinking all around me, right? right? But right, they're like, right. don't do this because it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. But not, didn't tell you why. No, didn't tell me why. They had yeah. dare. Drugs are yeah. really expensive, dare. I think. Yeah. No, no. It's, yeah, yeah. It's drugs dare, and something. Dare not. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? That, I don't that even, tells I don't you exactly the yeah. power of that. Exactly. But they were, they were really scaring us. Drug and alcohol something education, I think mm-hmm. it was. But what I'm getting at is that during that time, because of my beliefs about drugs and the fact that finally a friend of mine convinced me to smoke weed, mm-hmm. I think I was 13 years old and I remember smoking weed and being terrified at the experience and everybody was around me and looking at me and I was, everything kind of echoed and just turned really weird and my buddies go, hey, hey, look at Leo, he's tripping and I just kind of looked up at them and I was terrified. And then my buddy reached out his hand. He said, Leo, it's okay. You're high. And he reached out his hand. I grabbed his hand and I said, yeah. And every single fear, every single story that I had heard to that moment, I instantly said, these people lied to me. This is the most at peace, the most comfortable, the happiest I felt ever. And I feel accepted. And everybody just kind of wrapped around me and we celebrated that day. Yeah. And that was the beginning of this venture into drugs and alcohol that really went all the way up to the time I went to, went to the Marines, where before that was ecstasy, LSD, mushrooms, party drugs, all these nitrous oxide rooms. They exposed mm-hmm. me to this world that I didn't know. Yeah. And I found myself sneaking out of my house, uh, going to different parties that were in the middle of the week, and then going to high school the next day and acting like nothing had happened and just talking about how we're going to do it the next night. Yeah. And that's just the life we lived between for almost all of high school without anybody. No one knew. Not, not one of our family caregivers knew because we would hide it so well. Yeah. Um, and then the Marines came. <laughs> the Marines came and everything changed there. So you joined the Marines to lose the weight and you did lose the You did, in fact, lose the weight. Oh, yeah. I guess I left there terrified, of course. I, when I say left there, I left home terrified because I didn't know what was coming and I was yeah. told that. Everything was going to be like scary. I was never going to make it. This yeah, and that. Yeah. And not exactly supportive. Not supportive at all. Yeah. Actually, my friends laughed at me when yeah. I told them I was going. And that actually fueled me. I, I was committed to yeah. going and getting it done. And um, I lost actually about 72 pounds um, in 13 weeks. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So what you're saying is that Weight Watchers should invest in a boot camp? <laughs> I, I think that I think that the way that they did it to me, yeah. I said did it to me. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that to anyone, but it works. Yeah, yeah, but, it's one way to do it. Yeah, but I mean, with that came um, an incredible amount of stress and incredible amount of pain and hurt and doubt, manipulation, just a lot of humiliation, shame, things that I think I've carried with me, even though I left that place looking like a poster marine. Mm-hmm. My mind was there, you know, the the weight gain is just around the corner and it was about keeping that image because that's what was most important to me. I had finally made it. I had gotten the attention of people again, like not not again for the first time. People were noticing me. People were treating me different. I mean, people treat people different when they're overweight. Yeah, they do. They're very mean. Yeah. And for the first time, people were nice to me. I was getting attention from women. I actually went on a date. You know, I had a girlfriend. I had all these things that I longed for that I really dove into drugs to kind of make me forget. 
yeah. because there was peace in that for me in that time when I was hurting. But it was just a terrible way to walk into the world and then come back. And the people who I thought cared and loved, loved me didn't really give me the praise I thought they were going to give me. Mm. It was more like, oh, you think you made it now? Oh, look at you. You went to basic training and you think you're a badass or this and that. And I, I was just trying to fit in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been very painful. Yeah. I, I was hurt that my friends didn't accept me the, thought, the way that I thought they would. Yeah. yeah. So you got out at 23. I got out of the Marine Corps at 23. I actually went in originally as a reservist. Okay. And then I uh, went into active duty uh, because I didn't want to do it part time. Right. I, my parents wouldn't sign for me unless I did part time because I was 17. Oh, okay. So I came back and I said, I want to be an active duty Marine. Like, this is where I'm comfortable. Yeah. Because nobody out here really, like, I'm, yeah, whatever. And it was really hard to get back into active duty. So they actually found a position for me as a recruiter. So I did almost all my time in the Marine Corps as a recruiter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, it sounds like there was a lot of always looking to belong and always looking to feel better. That's, that's you know, that's what I'm hearing, at mm -hmm. least. You know, when you get out and, you know, you're not suddenly you're out of the club that you belong to, which was, was the Marines. What did you do from there? Well, I, I think the, the interesting part is, is that, again, I left the rave scene and all these drug parties and everything where I felt super connected and bonded. Right. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, the first thing I did was go to a rave. Hmm. I went, I went. Because I, you were seeking that connection. Yeah. And again. I went yeah. there and I saw my old friends and they were doing dope again. And somebody handed me a bag of mushrooms and I took them the day after the Marines, um, the basic training. And, but then I noticed that people weren't really like feeling me, you know, they, they were just, I'm different. I've changed. And so as time went on while I was doing my service, and I found other friends that did things like me. So were able to kind of live a double life. Like I was living this perfect life as a Marine. But again, like metaphorically, like sneaking away at night and finding um, these places where I would um, find people that used like me, that partied like me, that would forget like me. Yeah. And I was always trying to get back to my friends. But quite frankly, I had also burned bridges. You know, I, they were users too. They were drug users too. And, you know, people, when they use drugs, uh, they do things to one another. You yeah. know, they pinch bags or they hide yeah. things or they betray one another. And no so honor among thieves. There was a lot of that pain that was going yeah. on there too. So they kind of like went on, they moved on. And yeah. I went into this like really lost space yeah. where the drug use just got worse. But it wasn't until I picked up cocaine that it really took off with the cocaine and alcohol combination. What happened? Well, I, I think what happened was is that I found a combination that made me feel a way that I was always chasing right. um, that I experienced when I was maybe when I found when when I found that uh, that group when I was in high school or mm -hmm. uh, when I found the Marine Corps. Right. Those um, that feeling of belonging and right. ease and comfort, sense of ease and comfort, sense of ease and comfort. And the thing is, is that it was not acceptable. And so I couldn't share that with my mother or my father or my <laughs> partner. Right. And so I ended up doing a lot of secretive. So you were, you were still trying to be functional. I was absolutely functional. Yeah. I was doing well as a recruiter. I was, yeah. and while I was in the Marines, cause I was using in the Marines. Wow. So I, I, I was able to cheat tests and do all the things to keep this going because right. I needed in my mind, I needed the substances to be part of something. But again, when I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, there was a moment in time where I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. 
but there was always alcohol there and there was always cocaine. And of course, my parents were always there. Yeah. They let me stay on their couch. They let me do whatever. It was like, I was like a lost person that didn't know what to do next. Right. But was looking. Right. And then you experienced some tremendous trauma that just fueled that. I think before I mentioned the trauma, it's important to to point out that I was also looking for partnership and relationships. Mm. And I thought I found somebody. And um, my drug use actually went down when I found my first fiance. I was going to marry her. Yeah. And um, but my drinking never stopped. Okay. And so I actually found kind of a pathway into another job. So I, I ended up becoming a aircraft mechanic. I went to school to become an aircraft mechanic. And during that time, I started dating a woman. And basically, when I graduated, showed up at her door and said, we're moving. She said, what are you talking about? I said, look, I got a U-Haul out front. (laughs) Grab your stuff. We're moving to Oregon. I got a job. And she said, okay. She grabbed her stuff, put it in the U-Haul, moved to Oregon with me. It was like this storybook romance thing. And she had a little boy. And I was super excited. But what what I didn't realize, what I know today, is that alcoholism is progressive. Right. And I went there, both of us drinking like we thought normally. She wasn't an alcoholic. I was. And my drinking progressed and progressed and progressed. And my behaviors also got erratic. I would black out. I would probably raise my voice. I, I don't remember a lot of it. Yes. It was never violent towards her. But yeah. I, I definitely wasn't a pleasant person to be with. Right. And um, my fiance ended up becoming pregnant. And uh, when she found out she was pregnant. She made a decision to not keep this child. I had been raising her son on my, with her. She had right. a little boy. And when I, I didn't find out from her that she was pregnant, I actually found a sonogram oh, gosh. Um, on a bed when I came home one day. And I was like, oh my gosh. And what ended up happening when I saw that, um, she also had a pregnancy test I saw that was thrown into the trash and all these like all these messages that I'm getting from what I'm seeing right. was like not really exciting, you know. And I said, "Hey, what's going on here?" And right. she said, "It's over. I took care of it." And um, I ended up losing it. Yeah. Um, she actually uh, made a decision, and I I don't fault her today for that decision. She probably made the right decision. Right. But I marched out of that house, and I drank. Right, because that's your solution. That's my solution. And I drank to the point where I absolutely don't remember a thing. All I remember is waking up and I was face down um, with my hands behind my back. I felt all this cold, wet sensations all over my legs. I was dizzy. I didn't know. I just saw boots on the left side of my face, on the right side of my face. I heard people yelling at me, screaming. Um, I was being spit on. And um, I got thrown into the back of a vehicle, which was an ambulance. And the first thing I said, because I didn't remember anything, was, my God, did I kill anybody? And the nurse who was attending to me said, or the paramedic, no, you didn't kill anybody. And I was just relieved. Right. And then I saw my little boy riding his bike in front of the, or behind the vehicle. I go, hey, wait a minute. That's my son. And they said, you know, the cop that was there reached into his mic and he he says, that's his son, you know, and I'm like, what's going on? I have no idea. Well, what happened? Because you're coming from a blackout. I was coming from a blackout. I went out and to drown away my sorrows for what happened and my anger. And I came home in a full blackout, drove home, parked, got out, went into the wrong apartment at my apartment building. 
I walked into the apartment. I took my keys out. I put them on the counter with my wallet. I went and threw myself on the couch and fell asleep. Mm. It turns out that someone had just moved in to that apartment. They saw some man sitting on the couch. Well, she was startled and I got startled as well. And I was told that I ran into a, uh, a closet that I thought was my bathroom because mm. I'm in the opposite apartment next right, door. Right, right. And um, I wouldn't get out. And so she called the police. The police came in. I was terrified because I could imagine I was terrified. Right. And they came in blasting. They kicked the door down. They forced open the door. And they had a shotgun with less than lethal rounds on it. I reached for the shotgun because I was scared. And they shot me in my left leg twice and shot two um, beanbag pellets that embedded themselves about two inches in my left leg. And I bled terribly all over the place. And that's when I woke up. Oh, God. So you wake up and, and, and you know, those of us who've, who have battled uh, drug addiction and alcoholism, many of us know what it's like to come to. There's, you know, there are times where you've come to, to a, situ- a very traumatic situation. You have no idea what's going on. And, and y- you know, you have, to, you have to look around to try to figure out. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a pretty... Yeah, gnarly one to come to. There's no information, right? right. You're, it's, it's just what's panic. happening. Yeah, and I could remember like my 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 rib cage was spreading. I could still feel it right at this moment. My rib cage was wide open, and I couldn't breathe. And I was just thinking to myself, "What's happening?" Right. And I couldn't remember. Right. And I woke up uh, after that. I think I went out again. I don't really remember, but I just remember that afterwards, I woke up in a hospital bed. I was handcuffed to the rail. And my fiance, when I woke, opened my eyes, was sitting right over me. And she said, you see why you can't be a dad right now? Mm. I'll never forget that. And it pierced mm. my heart. And I got furious. Right. I was like, whatever. And she said, fix it. And I did the best I could. But at the end of the day, my attempt to fix it was fruitless. I was able to fix the situation, but she, she left. And when you, you were able to fix your alcoholism? No, I'm talking yeah. the situation. I got us a new place. Right, I right. had to go through the humiliation of telling everybody at the place what had happened. Right, I right. had to write all these letters. And so I did what I could to fix it. But right. she had already made her decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her son had to testify in front of a grand jury, her eight-year-old son, about how what kind of a person I was. And he went up there, I mean, an eight-year-old boy, oh. saying, you know, Leo is a good guy, that he wasn't trying to burglarize yeah. Which they tried to say I was doing, that I was in there to harm the woman that lived there, which was a lie. I right. Mean, I was drunk. But you were asleep. <laughs> I was asleep. Yeah. So, yeah, so she ended up going, and, and that's really the first trauma that I experienced with that. I mean, the one that was severe. And I walked away from that injured. I still have the scars. I was emotionally hurt. My family was terrified. They, charged my, they tried to charge my mother an ungodly amount of money. To protect me, even though the grand jury threw the case out, I was angry at the police. Yeah. And I drank more because of it, because I was trying to just get that picture out of my, that spread ribcage and that breathing and the spit on me. I was just trying to get it out of my mind because that's what my brain does. It plays pictures. It flashes. Just perfect. I can see it right now. Bam. Clear as day. And um, alcohol was the only thing that could turn it off. And what ended up happening is that um, that relationship ended. And it took me about 10 years to forget about that. It's like there's a common theme in my story is 10 years, 10 years. Like after, um, after that happened, I was angry at women for probably 10 years <laughs> yeah. because I couldn't get over what had happened. I blamed her. Yeah. But I wasn't strong. I, I, I wasn't aware enough. 
yet to realize that what I was dealing with was severe alcoholism. Yeah. There was no one to blame. How did you handle the breakup? So the breakup, like I said, I was angry. So my solution was to really just be out of control, drink more, use more, and be involved with random women more. Okay. It was like, it was what just, it was, it's what, what I felt made me feel like important. You know, it made me feel wanted and cared for. And, and that was full and peppered with all kinds of shameful experiences. Because right. again, during this time, I was gaining weight again. I put my weight back mm. on. That was one of the reasons why my partner or this person that I was with, why she was, there was some distance going between us. As she was like, you know, when I met you, you were losing weight, you were in shape, and then you started putting weight back on. And I remember being really shamed by that and scared. So I was going out trying to get some, I guess, validation. Yeah. And it was, it, it wasn't really working. And I would put myself in situations that normally I wouldn't do because I was either drunk or high. And um, I was trying to have sex, you know, with, with whoever I could. It was what I, I would fall back on and say, that's where my worth is. Right. It made me feel like important. And uh, that led to my second trauma. I was at a party and a friend of mine invited me to go. And this is a friend of mine who was uh, very, maybe we just known each other for a little bit of time, but I considered her my friend. And she told me that we were going to have a good time. We were going to go drink and do drugs and we were going to go to her house and have sex. That's the truth. And so I went. And when I got to the party, um, everything was happening the way she had described it. And then I blacked out. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what happened. I come to find out later that I was given something. And when I woke up, uh, when I woke up from what was going on, actually what had woke me up was an electric, like electrical sensation through my entire body that was, I, I, I compare it to fire, heat, burning, pain. And um, I was being held down uh, forcefully and I was being sexually assaulted. And I couldn't move, couldn't move at all. But I was definitely, I mean, it just in full disclosure and vulnerability, there, I was being penetrated by somebody. And I tried to fight to get out, but I couldn't. And uh, when I finally did come to or get some wherewithal and broke away from what was going on, I turned around and there was somebody looking at me and he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and smiled at me. And I wasn't wearing any clothes and I ran out of the house and I hid behind a bush outside because I didn't know it was like maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. Right. As a matter of fact, when I walked away from the situation, when I ran away from the situation, there were two elderly people sitting on a couch at the end of a hallway looking at me without clothes on. And I just remember... Like in the apartment. They were in the apartment and I freaked out and I ran the other direction. And um, I heard the person that I was with, the woman that... Right. So she I, was in the apartment. She was in the room and she slapped whoever it was and she said by their name and basically cussed them out. Wait, she was in the, the bedroom where this was happening? She was in the bedroom so where this she, was happening. So she she was... That's why I think that... I was given something because she, she was there with me and she was a person. She was, she was a, an accessory. I don't know enough. Yeah. I don't remember. But again, yeah. she, I, from what I understand, from what I remember, she hit this person and said yeah. by his name and said, kind of like, how could you kind of like that? Right. Right. And I went and hid and she came out and got me and I went back inside and I couldn't, it was like, the sensation was one thing, but it was the track that was paying in my mind. Like it was this complete 
Like, why didn't I do something? You know, here I am, a Marine. Here mm. I am, this person who's supposed to be like strong and powerful and I'm a grown man and I'm a man. Yeah. And I just got raped. And the, the perpetrator of this on, on me is standing right there and I'm not doing anything about it. Why? When you, when you go back into the When house. I'm going back in and I couldn't figure out why. I didn't know why. And so my mind went into these really, really dark places and, and I was afraid and started to doubt who I was, started to doubt my sexuality, started to doubt everything. And again, the only thing that could turn that off was the alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think... Um, it's incredibly powerful. You know, we talk about the Me Too movement, and I think, um, you know, sadly, it's not as uncommon as we'd all like it to be for women to be victims of sexual assault or survivors of sexual assault. Um, but I think it's much, you know, it's a really difficult thing for men to come out and talk about it as well. And um, I appreciate that because I know that there's so many men out there who have a similar experience mm -hmm. who want to say me too mm -hmm. and um and they're too afraid or ashamed and i know that there is a lot of you know questioning of your sexuality that goes on with that mm -hmm. which is adds just adds another layer you know it just adds right. another layer and i can't even imagine and and i can understand why that would fuel your your alcoholism mm -hmm. right you already have this alcoholism going and and um now you really now you really need to numb out yeah, and what it, did, what it did as well is it fueled a part of me that I wasn't prepared for, which was hatred. Right. I had this absolute guttural hate for uh, homosexuality, for um, anybody associated with homosexuality, mm -hmm. gay people, transgender, <clears throat> LGBTQ, basically. I, yeah. I, I had this because, you because I, I associated Right, and you, you had not experienced hate. I'd never experienced it before. Mm. And I think, I think that's, a, that's a big piece of who I was because, again, because of my questioning of why I didn't hurt this person, why I didn't do something about it, made me, like, my thoughts say, maybe I am gay, maybe I am this. And it really confused me. Yeah. And so I became angry, and I, I use the word hate now because it's changed. Right. Like, that's not who I am today. Yeah. Um, but in that period of life, and I think that's what dove me deeper into the substance use and the alcohol, because again, these images, these feelings, this disconnection I felt with people in general, the trust, the loss of trust, I just was lost completely, which I find ironic now because I am a massive advocate and ally for the LGBT community now. Yeah. Some of my closest friends are part of the community and they're my brothers and sisters and right. I love them. Yeah. You know, and so for me to come full circle after going through that has been just a, a part of this work that I've that I've been doing on my own, on myself to, to recover. How did you recover? Well, how did that, that, it still wasn't enough. I mean, you know, the things that happened with that, the shooting, I mean, the, the, the police situation, the the rape, again, it locked me into this this mind frame, uh, this mindset for 10 additional years. There you go. The 10 right. years again. Right. And I fought. And when I found cocaine, right. the mixture, that just made me drink more and more intense. And during this time, I accumulated all kinds of legal problems. Right. I, As we do. Yeah. I, I was getting DUIs. I, I, um, that was the main one. Multiple DUIs. When I stopped drinking, I had five in my past oh, dear. that I could count. And I'm lucky I wasn't in prison. Yeah. But they told me, one more, you're going. And I, again, my family. 
protecting me, yeah, helping me get through these things. And I was driving everybody up the wall and they were losing their minds. They didn't know what to do with me. But what they didn't know is that behind the scenes, when I was hiding, I was dancing with death quite often. I was using drugs and alcohol to the point of losing my ability to breathe. Um, I, would t I turned blue num numerous times. I had, a, a stroke, I had right? an ischemic stroke. Right. I wrote a goodbye letter to my father who was next door. You know, bless his heart. He's just trying to be a good dad for me. And he's opening his door. He knows I'm suffering. And I'm in there, um, lose the ability to move my face and my hand. And I'm writing a note with my non-dominant hand and saying, Dad, I love you. I'm sorry. And I'm passing out. I'm going to parties and getting angry at people because they only want my, the Coke that I have on me. And I'm um, leaving the parties upset and having situations like bleeding profusely from my nose on the way home. Uh, there was one time where um, I, was at, I was living at the house and I had a really terrible itch in my nose and I couldn't explain why. And I got angry at a party, left. I sneezed in the car and my entire windshield turned into a bloody, like just a sheet of blood. And it was like someone turned a faucet on in my head and it wouldn't stop pouring out of my face. And I walked into the house and I was crawling, coming in and out of consciousness. I slid all the way down the tile floor and I tugged on my mom's uh, gown because she was in the bed sleeping. And that's the first time she found out that I was addicted to cocaine. I said, Mom, I'm sorry. I've been doing coke and I think I'm dying. And she went and she picked me up and she dragged me into a couch and she was mad. Yeah. Like I didn't, I wanted help. She was, she was pissed. Yeah. And she sat there and watched me and said, I'm not calling the ambulance. You're going you're gonna to make it through this. I'm not calling this. You will not, you will not let our family look like this. And that was like the behind the scenes came to the front. And then it became more of like not letting anyone know that this right. was the problem. Right. That this was going on. Right. My mother would do things like stack, stack bottles of alcohol in front so everybody could see them when they come home or friends. And they'd say, she'd be like, look at what my son's doing. Look what I found in his room. And it just kept shrinking me, shrinking me even more and more into my own private space. At the end of, of you know, really when I, when, I, when I hit the end, I had experienced all these like health problems. I had put on, I was back up to 310 pounds. While doing cocaine. While doing coke, which is interesting, right? Yeah. But I did. I would run out of alcohol. I would drink NyQuil just to fall asleep. I would hold my, my chest and my heart's beating out of my body and I didn't know how to stop it. Just terrified. As soon as I came back out of as soon as I came down, it was right back to my dealer. It was just this terrible, terrible thing. And my parents didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I just know that I needed more and more drugs. The interesting part about everything is that during this time, I was actually quite successful. <laughs> right. I, was, um, I had left, again, the Marines. I went in and became an aircraft mechanic. I left the aircraft mechanic thing. I, I actually traveled all over the United States as the aircraft mechanic came back because I was drinking on the job at the, as an aircraft mechanic. It's not really a good thing to show up drunk, you know, oh gosh. Uh, fixing airplanes. I'm so, afraid. So they ended up letting me go. I came back to California and someone said, you know, you should try selling cars. And I did. And I ended up becoming incredibly successful at selling cars. I was making more money than I ever thought possible. And so I had this prestige. I had the money. I had the look good. I had an endless supply of cocaine. Mm. Um, I had camaraderie with everyone around me. I had found my place again, except this time it was money fueled and drug fueled and the car business pretty much swallowed me whole. Yeah. So all this incredible success and I'm sitting in yeah. my room by myself making all kinds of money with all the money going to cocaine. 
You're making all the money with cocaine. Yeah, and then it's all it's all just going to that. And so it's this terrible cycle nonstop. And again, the images in my mind never went away. You know, yeah. my, my my the friends that turned on me, my my um my shooting, the, the the person behind me, his face would play, and every time it was just like, I feel good now. I'm making money. And now I'm bringing it home, even though I, I'm getting that prestige. I'm I can't I can't handle it. It's too much for me. Right. So I came up with this great idea that you know I'm going to start cleaning up my record because I think I'm going to be an attorney. Hmm. Just kind of thought about it one day, and I remember telling that to somebody, and they laughed at me. I was dating this person at the time. They said, "You're going to what?" I go, you know, I've been thinking about it. I got all these things in my background and I figured out how to get one of them off of my record. I did it all through documentation. I used the legal system and I'm like, I wouldn't mind being a criminal defense attorney. Like I, <laughs> I can get, help people get off of this stuff. You know, right. like I kind of know what it's like right? and I'm going to help people. And I did. I went back to school high as hell, drinking, oh my gosh. doing everything. And I went and I got my degree in political science in two years. And after I got my degree in political science, I, um, I started applying to law school. And during that time, I took the ASVAB high. I took, I was doing everything high, still having the same health complications, except this time they started to get a little worse. I started coughing blood. Oh my gosh. I started um, I really deteriorating. And um, I was yellow, you know, and I was just trying to make it happen. I was with somebody at that time, told me they loved me, told me they cared about me. And I actually started to soften up a little bit with the idea of a relationship that might work. And then the third problem happened where I had applied to all these law schools and I used my private state, my personal statement. I talked about my recovery from drugs and alcohol. Oh my gosh, that is. Yeah, because that's what, that's what <laughs> someone that's not in recovery does is oh, that boy. they say they're in recovery when they're not. At least that's what I did. And so I wrote this and I sent it out and my mom said, don't do it. Don't do it. No one's going to give you any chance if you do that. Talked about my DUIs, talked about how I got out, you know. Oh, boy. Yeah. And I sent them out. And one by one, they started coming home to me, turned down, turned down, turned down, turned down. 18, 18 straight letters mm. turning me down for law school. So I called my partner at the time and I said, I'm really sad getting all these turned down letters and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And I heard a voice in the background. Who's that? I said, wait a minute, who's that? And she said to me, I'm sorry, Leo, but just things have changed. And it was somebody else. And I was being, I, I, it was, I was being cheated on. And at that point, all those images came back. Mm. All those letdowns and situations and that voice and that, you know, don't trust anyone, don't do any of this. And I really went off the deep end. Started drinking even more, started doing more drugs. Except this time, I didn't have the money because I had stopped selling cars and I was back in school. And when you're not working, yeah. you're just doing school and you've got a cocaine habit, it doesn't yeah. last too long. No, it does not. So I stopped selling all the stuff that my parents had lying around, all the little loose gold that I could find, all the little equipment that I could pawn off. I ran out. And um, I had found a couple odd jobs while I was in school. I was working for a chiropractic office at the time um, before, mm -hmm. and they had a little petty cash box mm -hmm. in their office, and I remembered that. I wasn't working there anymore, but I went over there. I wrapped a towel around my head because I'm not really a good burglar. <laughs> God. I reached over. I grabbed a rock. I tried to throw it through. the. Well, at first, I tried to kick the door in. didn't work. Grabbed a rock. I threw it. didn't work. Believe that. 
So I got really mad. I reached up. I grabbed a light fixture from the top of a, uh, from the hallway and I ripped it off the wall. That worked. And then I spun around in anger and spun it and a glass shattered. A window shattered and broke completely down. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting that to happen. And I ran into that place and I ransacked it looking for anything. And I found about, I found like five or six subway cards, uh, <laughs> like gift cards, about a hundred bucks oh, in a, in in a petty cash drawer. You know, it's not funny, but interesting is you're the second person on this podcast who stole petty cash from a chiropractor while they were using <laughs> that, which I just, so, I mean, so yeah, the that's, moral of the story the, is yeah, like, don't, yeah, don't, chiropractors don't yeah, hire. Oh my gosh. I've heard that. So you, you, a hundred bucks, hundred bucks, you're going to get some sandwiches. He, he, yeah. I, not really. I wasn't hungry. I was probably going to try to sell them yeah, for like half that's price. True. That's true. What am I talking about? But no, but I was 310. I was hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, <laughs> and so, um, I ended up, I got away with it. Hmm. Always fuel for the fire. I got away with it. And I remember like like casing the place afterwards, like seeing if they knew anything about me. Like I Oh, you're one I of those scared. like want to like, check oh, out the yeah, scene. Yeah, I was of the like crime. they had all this police tape. Like I woke up, I didn't realize it had happened. I was still like kind of in a blackout, like, whoa, what did that really happen? And it did. So I went back and checked and the chiropractor that was there, he's like, Yeah, they said someone came around here and and did this, and I really hope that we don't know who that is. And I think he knew who it was, but he just kind of like gave me this warning. It was weird. It didn't stop me. A few days passed, and went back and did it again. At, the, at the same at Cairo? The, yeah, just because I couldn't get into the Cairo. I broke another window next to it, and then I went where I knew there was still some money. But that time I didn't get away with it. That time I didn't get away with it. They, had, they caught me on camera. I went and got my drugs. I drank, took those pictures out of my head again. And then I went back to the house where my parents had always been protecting me, where I learned how to party and drink, my safe haven. And um, they came and they broke the door down, dragged me out again, handcuffed, face down again, except this time I was fully conscious. Um, they threw me in the back of the car, took me in, and I turned into this like defiant guy who thought he was a badass. You can't make me do anything. And this, because I was angry. I just didn't yeah. know. And, when I finally came to from, you know, came down from the drugs and came down from everything and I was sitting in that cell, all the reality came back to me and I was like fighting, how am I going to get high and drunk again? Because yeah. all the truth showed up again. So they ended up releasing me from the jail and I walked barefoot from the jail to my house because I, they took me out of my bed. Right. No shoes. That's how I used to do it, right? Yeah. By myself in my bed thinking yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, that's just how I did. That's how I rolled, <laughs> you know, but when I got home, my mom was sitting at the door and she said, I got a call from your old boss. He told me what you did. Mom, but, but you know, no, don't do this, Leo. No, mom, it's okay. There's not, no, it's not okay, Leo. They told me what you did and you're not going to do this anymore. You're using drugs and you're not going to do this anymore. And she, you know, she was serious, but she still let me in. She still let me in and she made me food and breakfast and about 15 minutes into our reunion, I get this slam on the door. Boom, boom, boom. Open up, police. Next thing you know, all these people come rushing into my house. All these cops. My entire block was covered with police cars. Oh, my gosh. They had a battering ram in the front. I had a little basset hound as a dog. They held that thing down pretty much at gunpoint because they thought it was going to attack them or something. It was a little basset hound. But yeah. I guess the, the whole thing is, is that everybody was terrified. My elderly grandmother was held back. Oh, God. My parents were held back. They handcuffed my mother and my father. Oh, they put God. them down. Face. They put no. them on their knees on the oh. on the front of the hallway. 
I ran straight to the back to the bedroom. I ran there because I had some dope there. Mm. And so I went there to make sure it was safe. They came and they got me. The police handcuffed me again. For what? So they pulled me out to the front. They sat me down in the front. I didn't know what was going on. They put me on the curb. And I remember, I remember this incredible sense of peace come over my body. And my entire neighborhood was out there looking at us. And I just remember just saying, everybody knows. Cat's out of the bag. No more hiding. But the hardest part about this was when I walked past my parents when they hand, had me handcuffed. And I just saw my mom and dad with their handcuffs on. And my, my, my dad was like, leave my boy alone. Don't touch him anymore. Just leave him alone. And um, they, they pulled me. And I remember that. And it was the first time, that was the first time in my life that I realized what I was doing. Seeing your parents handcuffed? Well, I mean, it's like the metaphoric, yeah. like what, what I had been doing to them for years. But for me, it was just my problem. Like, y'all right. don't know me. You think right. you do. Right. But I did, it was the first time I saw that my lifestyle and my, what I was doing and my addiction had leaked into their lives and had been there for years. But That's profound. I mean, I, I, completely, I completely relate to that where you think you're like, this isn't about you. Get out of my way to your loved ones mm-hmm. and really they're being handcuffed and put on the ground with you every single time. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean... After that happened, you know, they took me in. And what happened was is that there had been some local burglaries. And they wanted to make sure I wasn't the burglar. <laughs> that- so they came in there with a warrant because they had enough because I was a burglar, right? I had just broken into two places. So they were thinking I was a serial burglar. So they came in there and they took everything out of the house they could find, which was nothing. I wasn't a serial burglar. I'll never forget this because they wanted to also find evidence to convict me of this crime I had committed. And I, again, I'm not a good burglar. I did the burglary with sandals on. And they were very distinct sandals. And as they're putting me in the cop car, I have no shoes on. That's like, a, like also a That's, theme. Yeah, I always yeah. get pulled out with yeah. no shoes on, right? And so I hear my mom, mijo, mijo, they're not going to take you without your shoes. And she comes running out with the oh, same sandals that I wore during the no. burglary. I'm like, mom, no, no, don't do this. <laughs> those aren't, those oh, no. aren't mine. Thanks, mom. But she didn't know any better. Yeah. And so she, she handed him to me and I um, went there and I sat and again, they released me. I walk home. I got my car. I had a key. I went and got my car and I went and got a bottle. I slammed the bottle. It was a bottle of vodka. I didn't have any money for drugs anymore. So I only had it for the vodka and I went down on my knees in the car and I started picking rocks and dust out of there trying and I had this thing full of dirt on a CD case hair and all kinds mm-hmm. of nastiness and I still snorted it trying to get mm-hmm. something trying to taste it trying to lick it up do whatever I could do and I just couldn't do it and I s- remember that bottle just sitting there dripping on my seat and it's like everything's just kind of like it's, it's just there right like that's all that my life is now and I said yeah it's time for me to go I said my parents hate me everybody hates me I hate me this world hates me it's time to go and so I um I picked up the phone and I called my drug dealer and I said, hey, man, I need a gun. Hey, yeah, no problem, man. Where you at? <laughs> that simple. Yeah. And I said, how much? He said, oh, probably a couple hundred. It's all good. I mean, really, really smart. This, we're talking like that on the phone. It tells you how, like, really smart we yeah, are, right? Yeah, seriously. Not making it in no. the wire. And uh, I said, let me call you back. And I hung up and I thought about it for a second. And so uh, in all this chaos that was going on, I still managed to hit a couple meetings and try to get clean. Right. 
people were telling me I should go to NA or go to AA. And I was like, whatever. I think my parents bought the book and sat there and read it to me. It was like they were talking to a wall. Just went in and out and nothing clicked, right? But I went there and I remember going there and seeing this one guy who was really nice to me. And he handed me his phone number. And so at that moment when I was facing this like serious decision, right. final decision, as someone told me once, a final decision, final solution for a temporary problem. Yep. I called him instead and I said, hey man, I said, um, I met you in a group, in a room, and I want to know if, if you can help me. I think I need help. What, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I, I think it's also time for me to go. What do you mean? I said, I think you know what I mean. So well, where are you at? I said, I'm here. I'm in front of a I'm in front of a uh, old spaghetti factory <laughs> and I, I'm not going to wait too much longer. So mm. please, if, if you're close, come because I, like I said, I think it's time for me to go. Whoa, don't do anything, man. Don't do anything. And he showed up 10 minutes later and that was February 28th, 2012. That was the last day I put anything in my body. And so your sobriety date is February 29th. That's right. Leap year. <laughs> Leap year. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. And now you're a therapist and you help other people overcome their addictions. How did you make the decision from defense attorney, auto, um, airplane mechanic, marine. marine, salesman, salesman? I was also a teacher. Teacher. <laughs> I know. I got, we're going to keep uncovering what, you know, what brought you to, you know, listening to other people's lives every well, day? I mean... I was 310 pounds. I was coughing blood. I wasn't doing well. I was facing serious charges. I actually got into a law school. That's the part I forgot. Oh my gosh. They sent me an acceptance letter the day after I committed the burglary. No. Yes. I got it at my first acceptance letter and that made things worse, right? I was like, oh no, you know, like what am I going to do? And so like that was part of like what, what led to it's time for me to go because I got in. And so I, through, through all the legal trials and everything, my attorney actually made it so that I could attend law school. Yeah. And I went there and I told them, I said, hey, um, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't confess about what I had done because yeah. I was crossing my fingers that they wouldn't find out. And so I was actively working a program of AA and all these other things now. And they basically told me that I need to be completely open and honest about everything, right? Yeah. And so I went there and I told them, I'm scared as hell. I told them, I said, this has happened and I, I want to be an attorney, but this happened. No problem, Leo. Thank you for taking the hard choice and making the hard choice and letting us know. Thank you. You're in. It was like this total relief. Yeah. Well, two days later, I received a letter, an emailed letter that said um, that they had rescinded my offer. They told me that they had talked about it with the dean and everything and that it was too much. So me, like a good salesman, said I would like to speak to you and try to talk about how I could stay in. So I pulled a whiteboard out and 
went into this whole like cost benefit analysis of why it's a good idea to let me go into law school. And his exact words were, Mr. Martinez, there is no doubt that you're going to make a good attorney one day, but you're out committing freaking burglaries. And it wasn't freaking what he used. Yeah. And he says, why don't you go out there, fix your life and come back? I thanked him. I went home. I cried. I was worried. I was scared. My sponsor told me, hey, this is exactly the way it's supposed to be happening exactly at this moment. Remember that. I said, okay. So I went home and got a catalog out and I looked for the next best thing was be a paralegal. So I went back to school, be a paralegal. And during that time also I woke up and I actually was with this, one of my best friends who went, was in a treatment center with me. <sighs> That's another. Anyways, he was in a treatment center with me and I looked at him and I said, I would like to lose weight again and I think I'm going to start running. And so the next morning I woke up and I started running and I also started school. I went into a program at California State University, East Bay, for substance abuse treatment because I wanted to know what this, oh, excuse me, it was for um, paralegalism. But while I was searching for the courses to sign up for, I noticed substance abuse counseling. Mm. And I said, I want to know what's going on with me. Right. And so I picked that and I took both concurrently. I took the paralegal class and I took the substance abuse class and I met somebody who was a professor of mine. Can I say his name? Mm -hmm. It was Roland Williams. Yeah. He basically became my professor and started to teach me how to do this thing that we're doing. And he mentioned that he was affiliated with a number of programs. And I just remember being very fascinated by it that I made it halfway through the paralegal program and dropped out and said, I want to do this instead. Yeah. And during that time, again, I was also working on myself. So I had gone from walking around the block a couple times and coughing blood to no more coughing blood to walking three times to maybe doing a mile of walking than to jog a mile. It just was that kind of progression with that health part. And at the same time, I was doing the schooling. And about the nine-month mark, I had lost a substantial amount of weight, and I was training for my first marathon. Mm -hmm. And then I was also given an opportunity by Roland to be an intern for a treatment program in Thailand. So uh, cool. He said, I have an opportunity, and if anybody would like to take it, and I volunteered immediately. Had a little money saved up from other things that I was, you know, little odd jobs that I was doing again. And um, he accepted me. And at that point when he accepted me, I completed my first marathon in um, under four hours in San Francisco. Wow. And so I took those victories and I made a decision to dedicate my life to the work. And that's how I got into it. And that has since taken me from Asia to where I met my wife. I've also been able to travel to different parts of the country, different parts of you know, the world now, places I never thought I would see. Yeah. Uh, like as I was just mentioning to you, I was running on the coasts of Thailand with uh, monkeys and dogs and mm -hmm. wild dogs running with me and just hitting the top of roofs. I mean, not roofs, the top of hilltops, just kind of standing there and going, two years ago, I was staring out of blind saying, why is nobody calling me having OD, you know, ODing and having strokes? And now I'm running and I'm free. And um, those pictures stopped. So the, um, the pictures, you know, they, they turned off and I was able to do a lot of healing through the 12 steps and also through the treatment and the stuff I learned and the people I met. And when we ended up, when I met my, my now wife, I ended up coming back to the Bay Area and I was working for a number of different uh, programs. And I got the honor and pleasure of working with all types of populations. Mm. When I was in Dara over in um, Asia, in Thailand, I was working some pretty like exclusive clientele. And then I came, came back to San Francisco Bay Area and I was working for the forensic population with people that had nothing. Yeah. 
And one thing I noticed is that it didn't matter if you had a jet airplane that you flew into treatment in or if you were, you know, using your feet, um, just walking aimlessly to, to, you know, to the programs. The presentation of the disease of addiction was always the same. It's the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. It is the thing that transcends all other, all other strata. And um, I've had that experience as well, just seeing that being in, in treatment and being in meetings and, and you know, other places with people who had extraordinary accomplishments and wealth and people who had nothing. Mm-hmm. And we all felt the same. We all had the same, our stories. We were all afraid. We were all seeking a group to accept us. Mm-hmm. We were all looking for freedom from that, those feelings and that void and we sought them in substance, and it delivered for a while until it didn't. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I found that the only thing for me that's continued to deliver consistently is spiritual connection. Yeah. Like, the spirituality that I found for me when I went out to Asia was in nature itself. Yeah, That's me what it too. took for me yeah, initially, because I was convinced that spirituality wasn't for me. And slowly but surely with the work with my sponsor and with the people that I met and also through what I found was running and nature and all that, I was able to make that leap into sustained work into finding spiritual practices and learning meditation and learning to be in the moment. So that, that was, a, I mean, again, that's how I recovered and, and I know that's not how everyone recovers, Yeah. but I learned a lot there. And, you know, interestingly enough, the work has taken me to further. I mean, that's why I'm a social worker now is I started to learn about psychiatric presentations and how it's made worse, you know, with dual disorders and how Mm. to treat that. And that's why I went back to school to get my social work. And I've actually done quite a bit of work in the communities. I've done boots on the ground social work, working with some of the most difficult, most acute psychiatric cases that are struggling with addiction as well. People that are in the streets of Oakland, in the streets of San Francisco, in the streets of wherever, just behind dumpsters. Nobody knows they're even there. Tell us, about, tell us about that a little bit. You know, what was it like working with that population? We, we talk a lot about the population that does have access to resources. They, you know, minimum have a phone or they, mm-hmm. you know, decent resources. What was it like working with that population? You mean the population without resources? Yeah. I mean, the pop- oh. in Oakland. And, yeah. I mean, what did you... What what did you take from that? What wisdom did you come back with, or maybe not even wisdom? But I, you know, I, I think I think the takeaway here is is that when when people that have these kind of disorders and are diagnosed with you know severe mental illness as long as well as um, dr- drug uh, addiction, mm-hmm. that there's a uh, there's a difference in how we engage with these individuals because many of them do not know that they are mentally ill. And so, you know, fighting the stigma, fighting the stigma that this person is quote unquote crazy or they don't have the ability to or, or they're making a decision to be this way or something like that. The takeaway for me is, is that there is a way to engage with them that is effective. And when you effectively engage them and motivate them to become uh, to to seek treatment, medications and help, that they're able to recover fully. You've seen people recover fully from... I've seen people with acute schizophrenia, with people that also were addicted to methamphetamine, um, other substances, now are graduating college. They're reunited with their families. And it takes a team to help them get to that place of, self, of sustainability for themselves, self-efficacy. You know, a psychiatric 
team, also a substance abuse counselor, a family partner, because family is such a big part of it. And, you know, connecting them to resources, to employment opportunities, to housing opportunities. It's like a whole wraparound thing, because I think that people that have these types of disorders, there's a level of ostracization, I think. They get kicked out of society. And so right. many of them are using to just fit in, to feel, to not to fit in, but to, and I don't like using the word self-medicate so much, but more of to deal with the, the feelings of being. Why don't you like self-medicate? Because I think that when someone is experiencing symptoms of something and you medicate something, it's because it takes the symptoms away. Mm. In this case, I think they make the symptoms worse. So for me, I think they're more of coping with the feelings of being rejected from society. That's my belief. Right. And so whether people agree with it or not, it's, it's just my opinion. Yeah. But I've noticed that when you engage with people in the community at a level of non-hierarchy, but I'm seeing you eye to eye, meeting you where you're at, and trying to understand what's going on for you mentally and emotionally, that I become more connected to people and they become their own therapist, I guess you could say, their mm. own solution to finding out what are the things that they need to repair so they can get their lives back. And I'm simply assisting them by linking them to the different resources to make that happen. And I think that's the work that we do, right, is helping people walk on their own. Yeah, absolutely. How did that affect your recovery, working with this these complete op from you know, these incredibly VIP clients mm -hmm. to people hiding behind dumpsters in Oakland. What did that do for your recovery? I mean, for me, my recovery has always been its own thing. If anything, it made me pray more. Right. But what it did for my recovery is it put into perspective. It put into perspective some of the things that maybe I was walking towards. Again, I don't know what would have happened if I would have continued down that path. But it also... To be quite frank and honest, I, I, I think that for some point, it really took me away from my recovery for a while because I, I felt a need to dive into this population so much to help them that I started to forget about the things I needed to do to take care of me. But it was the stress that came back, the things that started to affect me, the internal struggle, the conflict. Oh, maybe I won't go to a meeting this time or maybe I won't do this mm, because I've got things... too much work to do because I have to help these people. I think that it skewed my my own vision of what my recovery was. So I struggled for a while. You know, that's a really great segue into this practice of recovery that we have. And you and I have talked about this where we really, it is, you know, in 12-step, in they talk about it being a daily reprieve, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I, I have experienced that, that it, you know, that is my experience. It is a daily reprieve. And the difficulty of consistent self-care, consistent mm. just um, attention to recovery and having such an extreme, you know, whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm, I'm just talking from my perspective, having where I have an extreme, I have the tendency to have an extreme personality or an ob obsessive compulsive, whatever, mm. whatever it is. If it's something I like, I, you know, drill it into the ground mm -hmm. basically and you know if, if i if i i go to the same restaurant and eat the same thing until i can't even look it in you know right. in, it, at, at all anymore and then i eat it again yeah. and it basically that so when i am into something um or i feel stress or i feel responsibility to people i mean particularly with parenthood Oh yeah, <laughs> you know where you're it's like, a whole new game. yeah, it's a whole new <laughs> game of like feeling that. But it's the same thing. Where you're like, I'm doing such important work. I have important things to do. There's so much to do. Blah blah blah. That the intensity that we get around things, it's it be it can become very difficult to yes. remember to take care of yourself right. and remember that 
your recovery is a daily reprieve, even right. if you are, you know, for me, 13 years away from your last, right. your last drink. Yeah, I think, I think for me, and I, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, and it made me think just now, like, what did it do for my recovery? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, I want to be like, say, oh, it strengthened it and this and that, but, you know, it challenged it. You know what I was expecting you to say? What's that? <laughs> I was expecting you to say that you realized that people who had more resources were less, were, had no idea like how close they were able to being able to recover and that you saw that how much resources and, and, and the ability to, you know, tap into that made a difference that basically that, that, that there was there was this inequality and mm -hmm. that despite having the same feelings and having the same disease that it greatly made you understand what access to treatment yeah. is in this world well i think from that perspective there's no doubt that people with more resources are much more difficult to work with <laughs> People yeah, without I didn't. Resources. I didn't want to say that they were more difficult because you are dealing with people who are methamphetamine yeah. users who are schizophrenic. So I don't want to. I don't want to step out no, no, on yeah, that no. on that beam. Yeah. But but you know that was. Yeah, and I I think that they're two different populations completely, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying is is that people that are are facing absolute abject poverty, you know, that yeah. don't have, you know, don't have anywhere to use the restroom, you know, right. things like that, like. Yeah. They, they are more, once you start to, and this is not a blanket statement, right. just my experience, right. right, is that I found that once I treat them with human dignity, that the door opens, that they are able to communicate with me in a way that maybe just for a moment, they'll have the wherewithal to listen just for a second so that I can link them to the resource that might get them to that next step. And so I think that the pain is so tremendous that any, any, any alleviation of that pain is positive movement. So to say it's easier to work with or they respond better to treatment, I think maybe isn't the most accurate thing to right, say. Right. It's more like the kind of the light bulb that turns on, turns on a little bit quicker. Right. Well, but I actually love, I love that, I love your authentic answer because it's one, it's authentic. And two, because you're right. I have been, when you are on, you know, I, I, I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. I have training and interventionist training and you know, when I've been on the front lines with a family and I, and I care about them and I really want to see, I am, I am just totally engulfed in what's going on with that case and working with that case mm -hmm. and doing everything I can to help these people. And I, my needs do go out the window. And you so your authentic answer is actually really great because it is true that as recovering people, we yeah. really struggle to stay recovering. Absolutely. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's yeah. really, it's really when, you know, when that pain is right around the corner, right? Mm -hmm. When you, when it's six months in or whatever, that pain is real close to you. You're like, I don't ever want to feel that way again. But yeah. when you're, you know, you and I have talked about how like, we don't even relate to the person. We we don't feel like right. that person anymore yeah. that we talk about in our story. I mean, it's like a, it's a story. It's yeah. like, you, you know, it's like an HBO special. I don't right. know who that girl was. And that's part of how we talk about right. it, right? When we're, when we're in recovery. And so it's hard to remember and, and conjure yeah. that pain at that level that fueled our desire to change and pray and meditate. And yeah. so now 
as we, you know, get normal mainstream lives, which mm-hmm. we have, we've, we're mainstream people now. Yeah. We're, we're in the fold, we're in society yeah. and, you know, we're, we're doing good in the community and it gets really, you know, it is tough. And, right. and, and what I've found is that my alcoholism is not dead. My, al- not. my alcoholism yeah. is, will find work. Mm-hmm. It'll find you know, uh, food, it'll find, it'll, it'll latch on to anything it needs to, to feed it. And I, and I have to remain vigilant and it's Mm -hmm. so, it can be so exhausting as like a life. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I've done all the things, you know, leave me alone. (laughs) I, I, and I love what you're saying about the different like outlets that we find. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a human being and the stressors show up. And for me, stress is a trap. And when I overwork, um, overthink, overcare, <laughs> yeah. you know, over end, anything, over anything, yeah. I end up that person that you're talking about. I'm watching that HBO special kind of yeah. like does a guest appearance yeah. in my life. Yeah, it's yeah. like, hey, remember me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. I, and it's a perfect it, way. Yeah. It creates featuring, stress in my. Yeah, exactly. Featuring my very ill self. Right. It's like, what's going on? Yeah. Like, why is my head hurt this way again? Yeah. Why do I? Why am I remembering? Why can't I think straight? Why am I snapping at this person? Mm-hmm. Like, let me eat that food. Why am I, let me eat let, that food. Let me, let me order yeah. it. And so like, Why am I defensive? Right. Why am I craving this? Why am I, why am I, you know, right. it's, it's the, I love the over, over because it's like, right. you know, it's, that's, you know, we talk about the different programs, right? You started in, in Narcotics Anonymous and ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, you know, and I am a member of AA as well. And, you know, it's funny because we have these different delineations, right? You know, we have the Overeaters Anonymous. We have... Been there uh, too. Yeah, (laughs) me too. But you have uh, Food Addicts Anonymous. Mm -hmm. You have Opioid... uh, I think you have Heroin Anonymous. I mean, you Mm -hmm. have every anonymous program, which is wonderful, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. Codependence Anonymous. But really, it's just over, over. It's whatever you're, you know, we could start a whole group of people and all of us would fit into most of them, you know, over anonymous. I don't gamble because I don't like not receiving something for my money. So I I don't know if I could go in that program. But, you know, maybe with enough work, you know, if if enough things, you know, fell out of favor, you know, it's possible. And just that, you know, even in the like remarkability of, I hope that's a word. I um, think it is. Oh, phew. So even in the remarkability of... It is a word. It is. Okay, perfect. Because you said it twice. Exactly. I'm going to say it three times. Even in the remarkability of you losing that weight and starting running, walking around the block and that progression, which is like a beautiful metaphor for recovery, right? You just, you walk around the block, like that's how we do it, right? We, we stay sober one day, we stay sober one minute, blah, blah, blah. We, those things add up. But even in that time, that, that, that nine months, mm-hmm. right, you went from zero to completing a marathon, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's that's still an extreme and losing, you know, over yeah. 50 pounds, whatever it was. And that's, we're still, we are people with extreme behaviors, right. even in our health. And it isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's mm-hmm. just something we have to pay attention to. Right. And for me, it was like, I'm driven. Like right. that's, that's the right. way me I say it. I'm driven. I've, I'm ambitious. And people would tell me like, you know, Leo, I'm watching you run. I'm watching you do this. Like, why don't you take it easy? It looks like it's, and I'm like, wait a minute. Like I'm committed. Yeah. Like this is important to me. What, why are you getting in my way? Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? And 
I mean, that this the last time that I got into the running and did all that, I lost 100 pounds total. I went from 310 to 210. Oh, my gosh. And so, yeah, it was extreme. And so, so I never lose weight running. Oh, man. Because I got it so was brut- hungry. It was hill sprints. <laughs> that does it. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I didn't do that. Distance and hill sprints yeah. will do it. Yeah. But don't, I mean, don't overdo yeah, don't it. Do it. <laughs> don't overdo I, it. I, yeah, don't overdo it. Yeah. But the... Um, to telling me to I, don't overdo it. Yeah. My body is definitely paying the price now. And, and the scary part about everything is that, you know, I'm 43 years old and my body is starting to put pounds back on. Right. And what I found is, is that my, the, the voice in my head. Comes back. It comes back. Yep. And even though the pictures are gone, there's still wounds there that yeah. haven't been healed fully. And I'm aware of them. And my wife is, my, my wife, she's a somatic therapist and she's, <laughs> she's super aware of like the body and, and or yeah. she's actually a somatic therapist in training. I know you're hearing this. Um, <laughs> but what ended up happening is that I've decided to seek additional yeah. help. Because you're at that next, we, we get to that next phase. I think mm-hmm. each, each piece of our recovery, and it kind of depends, you know, it's in terms of how much time it takes us to get to each wave of, mm-hmm. but we have to upgrade our, you know, Roland Williams, who, you know, has been a mentor to both of us, talks about upgrading updating your recovery program. Right. And uh, I think you were in that training as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, that, Man, that that cut through it all and hit me mm-hmm. in the heart. Like, are you doing the same things that you did when you were a year sober yeah. that you are doing when you're 10 years sober? And I thought, oh, God, mm-hmm. yes, I am not upgrade. Like, I because it's easier because mm-hmm. and so as with anything, if we don't grow with the time, the length of you know time we've been in recovery, then it's stagnant, right? Exactly. And for us, if we, you know, they say if you're not growing, you're going right. Mm-hmm. So if for us there's no kind of hovering in the neutrality. Yeah. It's downhill, man. It's yeah. that's it. Like if you're not doing it, you're going downhill and it may not feel that way. Mm-hmm. And everything in your life may be successful and everything may be good and it may be pretty, but on the inside, if you're not moving right. up, you're moving down. And I think it all, you know, we talk about being in relapse as a process. Mm-hmm. Relapse is a process. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've been in relapse, yeah. right? I haven't relapsed right. in the last 13 years, but I've been like, man, I'm in relapse. I'm doing mm-hmm. all the things that, that can, that, that, you know, that, that person, that, that old me is yeah. making a, a, a special appearance. And why am I doing this? And blah, blah, blah. And that's when we get back on track. And that's mm-hmm. the piece of recovery. That's when I, you know, reach out and do the things that have worked for me or look yeah. at what, you know, what is the spiritual piece that I need to do in my recovery. And the biggest thing lately for me has been living in an abundant mindset Mm -hmm. as opposed to scarcity. Like it's all going to run out. There's never going to be enough. Like whatever it is, I live in this place of like, there's not enough food. There's not enough money. There's not enough, you know, what it's all fear based. It's all like, there's not enough whatever there's like, I'm, I'm terrified. I mean, I, I'm afraid that my dog's going to be cold at night cause there aren't enough blankets. Mm-hmm. I mean, stuff where you're like, Ashley, this is, you know, just like yeah. there's not enough. And that mindset that's relapse mode. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was taught that we're on an escalator that's going the opposite direction and I'm trying to climb it. And <laughs> I, and I've I, done that. And I, yeah. <laughs> and, and in order for me to get to wherever I'm going, I have to keep moving. Cause if I stop, I'll end oh, up on the floor eventually. Right. And so, you know, and each one of those steps is a day. And so I have to be doing some activity for my recovery that day. Mm. So I that's how I, that. that's how I like I have love been that. Yeah. conceptualizing like what my treatment is. And there's days that I stand still. 
Totally. Right. And I'm aware of it. I'm totally aware of it. And I think that's what has helped me tremendously is the awareness, the awareness of that. I am, I am actively in recovery. I'm aware of it. I know what happens when I'm not actively in recovery. Yeah. Then I am untreated alcoholic and I start to act differently. I start to um, hide things. I start to, Mm -hmm. to hide my thoughts, my feelings. I lose my ability to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I become very guarded and protected and I feel like crap. And next yeah. thing you know, it's like I haven't got to the place where I'm wanting to use a drink again, but I might as well, you know, because of the, yeah. w- the way I'm living. And that's happened to me a few times. Unfortunately, I've been able to support myself with people that, I mean, the, the programs and that I've been to and also AA, I have brothers there that mm. they're my brothers. I love them. We'll do anything for one another. And we're about each other. Yeah. And that has been a tremendous key for me. I mean, all my, my, and not everyone in my life is an AA member, right? Yeah. But the people that are the closest to me, for example, my, my daughter's godfather, my best man, the person who married me and my, and uh, my wife, we were all AA recovering brothers because that's the, those are the people that took me in and they supported me. You know, I've, I've lived a life of feeling disconnected. And for the first time they accepted me how I was. They didn't judge me. Right. The first time I, I opened up about the, the, the sexual assault, uh, it was to an AA brother who I was afraid of to tell him because he was going to judge me or he was going to tell me that, you know, or laugh at me or say, why didn't you kill that guy? Like, what's wrong with you? He said, what's going on, Leo? You got something you got to tell me. I said, no, it's nothing. He goes, yeah, yeah, you do. He said, no, no, it's okay. And he goes, no, it's not okay. He says, look, he was like, what do you, why don't you just give it to God? He said, you know, and I said, there's no God. And if there is one, he doesn't want me. And he told me, he said, listen, I don't know what you're afraid of, but just who is this person that you call spirituality? I said, uh, you know, it's what everybody calls. I was raised this religion yeah, and this yeah. and that. And he goes, just imagine this person just kind of sitting there and just kind of smelling flowers. This is what he said, just smelling flowers. <laughs> and you go up to him and you tell him whatever you can't tell me. And he turns around and he says, get out of here, man. You're stupid. Leave. This is, uh, you're dumb. Or he insults you. Would he do that? course not. He says, then what are you afraid of? And I thought about that for a second and he was right. I had nothing to be afraid of. And I took a risk. I took a chance with one man, which is ironic. Yeah. And he hugged me, he held me and he told me it was okay. And, um, I was free from it. And it's, it's, it's that kind of support that I sought my whole life. And I found a place where it was abundantly given, like you said, living in abundance, you know, and I'm very, I'm forever grateful for that. And it's the key to my sobriety. It's the key to know that I always have someone that I can reach to that understands we're like the survivors of a shipwreck, mm-hmm. right? And to be able to be in that space when I'm out there working with different psychiatric disorders or when I'm online working with people with you know, single disorders or substance abuse or alcoholism or drug addiction, you know, is knowing that no matter what happens in those spaces, that I can check out for a second and just pull away from my desk, put down my work and walk to my recovering brother and say, hey, this is how I feel and I need you right now and they're there for me. And that's what it's taught me about my recovery now is that I get to do that. And before I didn't know that that was an option for me, I thought it was all about work, 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 work because that's what we do. Right. And I've been lucky that way. But I still still have my struggles and my challenges. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I... You're human. Yeah. We're, We're having a human experience. And there's tragedy, too, in the work we do. Yeah, there is. And that's been the hardest thing for me. Yeah. 
especially coming with the background of tragedy and trauma and all these other things and seeing people go through it, I, I learned my limitations. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been able to use your story to help other um, survivors? I have. I, I'm careful with, you know, I, I, I think that my story and my recovery is how I did it. And to tell others, this is how I did it, this is how you should do it, is kind of like a slippery slope, right? Yeah. But when I find that it would benefit them. Yeah, 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 of course. Right. I've, I say, you know, or I hear someone tell me I, I was attacked or something like that. Um, I'm careful with that information in a clinical setting. Yeah, of course. But when it comes to like AA, yeah. I've given my story yeah. and I've been open about it. And people have walked up to me and told me I thought I was the only one. Thank you for sharing. And it's it's clearly not because I want to be like, oh, good job, Leo. It's more like I'm saying it because it empowers me. Yeah. It frees me from that. Right. And it lets people know that, you know, this former Marine. Well, that's why I was, I was funny. I yeah, was just this gonna, former Marine yeah. is, is just as, is, is just as wounded and, and, and able to recover from that, you know, that, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm glorifying something. Oh, and it it's, doesn't sound like I that. know it's, it's more like, I just want to, I just want to let people know that it's okay to be part of a group that I think is bigger than we think, than we know. The dichotomy of the Marine and yet the toughest, strongest, most macho, amazing thing you've ever done is be vulnerable is perfect in the sense that it's really what we try to communicate, I think, in, in therapy and in, in recovery, which oh, yeah. is that you can, you know, do all the pull-ups and withstand all the humiliation and torture and whatever, whatever it is, whether, I mean, maybe it's not military, but whatever, whatever your version of intensely masculine, mm -hmm. you know, lifestyle or actions are, and yet the most strength you'll ever have yeah. is in the vulnerability. That's Without a doubt. Strongest you'll ever be. And, and I, I think that's really important for people to know and hear. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that I have to continue being that way. Yes. Because the second, the second, at least for me, is again, I can only speak for myself. Mm -hmm. But the second that I think I've got it is when I'm most exposed. Yep. Is when I'm most vulnerable, but not in, in the, not a good way. <laughs> not in the good way, right. Is when I am, I think, in danger, not really vulnerable and with the word, the way I'm trying to communicate it, it's more like I'm walking a very, very dangerous line where I start to think that this is all because I got this and nothing can hurt me and just get over how I'm feeling. If anything, the one thing I've learned in recovery as well is, is that I get to tell people how I truly feel and not be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm hurt, I'm going to say I'm hurt. If I'm sad, I'm going to say I'm sad before I wouldn't say a word. And have you ever burst into flames because you said you were hurt? I think one time I I almost did, but that's a different story. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I was playing with matches. No, oh. no, no. It's it's never never happened. Maybe burst into like sprinklers. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was yeah. definitely bursting into like waterworks. Yeah. Yeah. That's that yeah. comes with the territory. That's yeah. it's a hard thing to adjust to. I still struggle with that though. Like yeah. I, I'll I'll still pull back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, like, don't do it. 
Yeah. Don't do it sometimes. I like I've gotten in fights with my husband and I'll cry and I'm like I'll be straight faced because I don't cry very often. I'll be straight faced and just a single tear will come down. Like so I'm st- <laughs> still like angry in a single tear. It's all fighting. Yeah, it's still fighting. It's yeah. holding on. Yeah, because don't, our, don't go. it's the core beliefs that, you know, they come back, right? Yeah. We haven't we haven't we haven't suppressed them, you know, they're not gone. Right. So yeah, they come I, back. I think that's the the reason for like the quest for more work. Like yeah. I'm actively looking for for um I always get it wrong, EMDR. Yeah. I always, I'm looking for it because it's magic. I because I believe that I have experienced trauma that I have not fully processed yet. I mean, how could I not thinking of the story I just gave and about the things that I remember and I'm still feeling, you know, I, even though the pictures are gone, like I still remember that. I think my body, again, the body never forgets. Yeah, my yeah. body is like yeah. holding on to that Yeah. because I'll still get like little chills or zaps yeah. when I hear like boots slamming on the ground or, yeah. you know, or I'll watch something on TV. A little bit of that will come in and, and affect me and bring me back to that place just for a moment. And then I just kind of shake my head and off. And I don't, I don't think I need to live that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm still, I mean, I'm a work in progress. I'm Absolutely. still, I'm still looking for that completion. And again, that's, that's the, that's the practice that we should do, right? Because at least as substance abuse counselors, right? And as therapists, that's what we teach. And, mm-hmm. and if we're not doing that for ourselves, then what are we doing? Totally. No, I, um, so last, it's been a, yeah, it's been a year. I was the first responder to a, child to my next door neighbor's um, son who drowned in an empty pool in mm. rainwater That's and terrible. yeah and no yeah. and nobody else knew how to do CPR and so I was doing CPR and they're my neighbors yeah and um, it was a really I left my kids alone in our house they were a year old mm. um, so I left my one-year-old twins I mean, they were in their their playpen and they were safe, but like that was my response yeah. to run to this, run towards this. I was just really, you know, I, I was ashamed that I did that, even though I was going over there. Helping. Yeah, I was helping. I was ashamed that I r- ran that way, and and I did CPR on this baby, and and hopefully, you know, maybe I bought him some time. I don't know. He ended up passing away, and mm. um, and I. I really, and then I walked in the, this is um, Valentine's Day, and I walked in my front door right back, and I'm, I have so much adrenaline, I'm hysterical. Like, hysterical, I've never been that hysterical in my life, never. I can't even, I mean, in any given situation in my life, I've never been like that. And I look at the TV, and it's the Parkland shooting on the TV. So it's just all around you. And I'll never, like, it was one, you know, when those pictures, right? I'll never, I walk in and the Parkland shooting is wow. just right on the TV and the twin, my babies are right there. And I was, man, I, it took me, I was not okay. Like I was not. not okay. It took me a while and, and, um, you know, when I was falling along with the baby and, and then, and then he passed and I did EMDR, I actually did it online with a therapist and I'm telling you, Leo. It was like it's, magic. It's like magic. It was like yeah. magic. I used to walk by, they're my freaking neighbors yeah. I used to walk by their house and think about like oh god I gotta hide the kids or like have all the intrusive thoughts or like their my bedroom was you know is not that far from the pool and I the, the thoughts were constant I was always afraid that the kids were making too much noise and that they would hear it and get upset because they mm-hmm. would hear children and all this stuff and I'm, I'm telling you they they went away yeah 
I didn't, I didn't believe it could happen. I've read that. I've read that like there's research that after like three sessions or five sessions for single traumatic events that it like, yeah. it can help remove yeah. like, like the PTSD. And, yeah. And the, for, the, the, for more severe cases, it's like over yeah. 90 days yeah. like that, but it goes away. I forget the exact, but yeah, I'm interested. You know, one of probably the most, I shouldn't say the most traumatic event, but one of the things that I believe affected me tremendously was actually in the work that we do. Um, I had a young man who he, I met with him and about an hour or two later, he decided to take his life. Oh, God. And we had just started working together and having to, and that, that remembering like that image of him in front of me, fully full of life, and then he's just gone. And the way he did it, and it was in a way that was very, it sent a message, like videotaped, all this, I don't need to get into all the specifics, but he, he just sent a message of the reason why he didn't want to be on this earth. And it's, that's something that kind of like stuck with me. And yeah. I thought about, can I really handle this type of work? Right. You know, when, because this is a reality, like, you know, I mean, this is a chronic progressive and fatal disease, yeah. whether it's through overdose accident or by self um, or by disease connected to it. And just knowing that people that struggle or are not able to get linked to an active recovery program and, and do the work that sometimes more often, not more often than not, but sometimes you, I have to experience loss of life or tragedy is something that I think is why having that tool, that tool, right? Yeah. Having that, that work constantly going. Yeah. Because I know people that are in this field that don't have that so much and, and are struggling and yeah. I don't want to be that. Yeah. Okay, I got to take care of myself. And then there's really no shame in trying to no. be better, you know? I, I know. It was just, <laughs> it's just funny. I mean, we have this like shame and like trying to be better, mm -hmm. trying to be well, trying to take, you know, and it's it's like, where does this come from? You yeah. know, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you are a remarkable, remarkable man. Thank you. And I'm so proud of you. And, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way. <laughs> I really, I, I'm not taking it that I way. Feel, I feel so much joy for the life that you have created for yourself. And, and I, I, you know, see your wife and your daughter and, and this beautiful life. And I know that your story is going to help a lot of people. So thank you for coming on and sharing it with us. And, and, um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I was looking forward to it. I was nervous, but I think that, I think that the opportunity to be able to, to say these things and to share the stories in such a, an open platform, if it can help one person, then that's, that's, that's enough for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 